May God's love be with you all. If you have a Bible handy, I invite you to open to the Gospel of John chapter 15. And we will pick up there in just a moment. As I look around, I'm thankful to see some new friends and new faces uh, worshiping with us this evening and spending time with us. And I hope and pray that as we make our way through the Gospel of John this evening, that you will be encouraged and that you will be uh, enlightened to the Gospel truth that we find here in the Gospel of John. You have the unfortunate, maybe the fortunate, privilege of gathering and being in a place where people have already been walking in a story for many weeks. And so we're inviting you just to do the best you can to jump into the story with us and to spend time together in the Gospel of John. I'll do my best to bring you up to speed on where we are. We are walking with John in his Gospel, and we are somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been speaking with His disciples and teaching them things that they need to know before He leaves this world and leaves them on mission. And so He is instructing them on very important matters. But somewhere along the way, He is teaching them things that are very hard for them to hear. And so an evening that began with celebration and Passover has turned into a very sad time. Jesus has spoken to His disciples about those who are going to betray Him and those who are going to deny Him. And He has spoken to them about how He has to leave and how they are going to stay behind. And their hearts are sinking lower and lower. And if you could track the trajectory of the story, you would find yourself going down, down, down with Jesus. It seems like every week as we hear more of this story, it feels more like a downer. Well, tonight is no different because as Jesus and His disciples make their way across the city out to the Garden of Gethsemane, As they walk the streets of Jerusalem in the dark, He begins to tell them things that are very sad and very difficult for them to hear. He piles on the things that are already difficult for them to grasp. And so I want you to brace yourselves because you're going to hear some difficult things tonight. Not difficult because you're going to be be hit hard or challenged, but difficult because of the realities and the truths that Jesus is going to lay upon us. Jesus is counseling His disciples to do something that I want to counsel you to do as well. And that is to hang in there and to stay connected with Him no matter what. Even if the world hates you. Even if haters persecute you. Even if life gets difficult for you. Hang in there and stay with Jesus no matter what. Our sermon text for this evening is found in the Gospel of John chapter 15, and I'll read verses 18 down to 16.4. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Now brace yourselves and hear the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. The Word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading and the hearing of His Word and all the church says, Amen. may be seated. Now, once upon a time, I was a student in a mission training program, and many of our teachers loved to go to John 15 and attempt to ingrain in us the notion that one proves himself to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ by bearing fruit which is true, except for the fact that they interpreted bearing fruit to mean making other disciples. So in their view, bearing fruit meant making disciples. And by implication, not making disciples meant getting cut off from Christ. And so it was by this sort of faulty exegesis that they motivated their students to go out and do evangelism. And it's also by this sort of flawed theology that they motivated their students to do works for salvation. If not to gain it, then certainly to keep it. Now even in those days, I disagreed with their view. And as I've grown in my understanding of the gospel of grace, I disagree with it even more strongly now than I did then. However, I will concede one point to them. They were partially right about this one thing, about the missional aspect of the branches on the vine bearing fruit. It's just that they were totally wrong about what the fruit is. The thing I want you to focus on here for just a moment is the missional aspect of the vine and the branches. Now, if you weren't here last week, then let me bring you up to speed quickly. Jesus told an allegory, a parable, and said that He is the vine and that all of His followers are the branches and the branches are to bear fruit. And there's a reason for that, which I want to show you as we get into our story tonight. The fruit of the vine is to be held out by the branches. It is to be carried out into the world by the branches. And that fruit is supposed to point the world back to the vine. In other words, point the world back to Jesus Christ. This is simply a fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said when he said, In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, branches, and fill the whole world with fruit. In this way, the world will come to know who Jesus is. The world will come to know that we are united to Christ and that we are in communion with Christ and with one another. 
Now, before we move on and get too deep into this story, I want to clarify something. If you will allow me two minutes to get on a soapbox over here. Over the past decade, there's been a lot of debate among pastors and evangelists and church planters and missionaries over church models. Some of you might not be aware of this. Others of you are. And so in this corner, you will have the attractional church model. And in this corner, you will have the missional church model. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Which one is better? And this is the debate. The attractional church model says that we evangelize people by drawing attention to ourselves and trying to get them to come to us. We market ourselves. We market our churches. We do outreach events that target specific kinds of people hoping that they will come and be a part of our church. The missional model says, no, no, no. We evangelize people by forming relationships with them and sharing life together with them. And we invite people to come and live out the gospel wherever they are, doing whatever they do, at home, at work, at play. And in this way, people will come to know what our church is. And Jesus. And after a decade of wrestling with these things, I want to say a pox on both your models. The trouble with these models is that in practical reality, they are too church-centered. They end up pointing people back to the branches and not to the vine. That is the problem. In the allegory of the vine and the branches, Jesus calls us to be both attractional and missional. You don't have to choose. You just have to do both. But you can only do both to the degree that you are willing to get outside yourself and point back to the vine. It's not about your branch. It's not about your brand. It's about Jesus. So when we branches go out and we hold the fruit of the vine, love, joy, and peace, we are being both missional and attractional. Attractional because the spiritual fruit gives attention, gets attention, gets the world's attention, and it should point back to Christ. Missional because we are inviting the world to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what does all that have to do with this story? Well, one reason that many of us have come up with these different models of church is because we're always trying to figure out what works, what gets results, what makes churches grow. And American evangelicals are the worst at this. We are slaves of pragmatism. And we think that if we get a result that we desire, then God must be behind it and it must be the thing that He wants us to do. But that's not always the case, is it? See, the problem is, the main problem is that it totally ignores what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus makes it clear, for example, in this passage, that even if we hold out the fruit of the Spirit, even if we carry the fruit of the vine out into the world, there is no guarantee that the world will like what it sees, hears, smells, feels, or tastes. There is no guarantee that the world will be drawn to Christ or fill up our churches or that the world will say, yes, save me vine, save me Jesus. There's no guarantee of that. 
And so if our end goal is simply to meet our desires, if it's simply to fill up our buildings, there are a lot of better ways to do it than what I'm doing at this moment. Believe me. This is the least practical way to fill up churches. is to have a guy yell at you for 30 minutes. And yet Jesus calls us to preach the Gospel. He calls us to worship. He calls us to do these ordinary things like pray and sing and gather together and eat and love one another and wash each other's feet. And somehow, through all of that, He makes Himself known to the world. So we hold out the joy, the love, the peace of Christ. And yet often we find that the world still hates us. And we carry kindness and goodness and faithfulness out into the world. And we find that sometimes the world still persecutes us. And you know what the temptation is? The temptation is to say, whoa, I'm not going to keep holding that fruit. I'm not going to keep carrying this out. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to conceal it because it's not worth all the trouble. What Jesus is teaching us, teaching His disciples through this story, is that we are not sent out into the world to make a name for ourselves. We are sent out into the world to make the name of Christ great. We are sent out to fill the world with the fruit of the vine, whether the world likes it or not, whether the world receives it or not. Now, as much as we want everyone to like us and to speak well of us, to love us and to treat us well... Jesus warns us that we should, in fact, expect the opposite thing to happen. If you're reading the text carefully, you'll see repeatedly the word if, if this, if this, if this, which makes us think that there might be a chance that the world will leave us alone. And yet Jesus is actually making it clear to us that the world will hate us. The haters will persecute us. Why? But there's no reason to hypothesize over why all of this will happen. We don't have to make up reasons. Jesus tells us plainly that the world will hate us and haters will persecute us for these reasons. Disobedience. They hate Jesus and they do not keep His Word. Intolerance. We are not of this world. We are chosen and elect out of this world and grafted into Christ, which shows that we are now defectors. We are rebels from the world. And so they are intolerant. And then there is ignorance. They do not know the Father and they hate Him. So the reasons, if you had to pin reasons down on why the world hates and persecutes the followers of Christ, it is because of their disobedience, their intolerance, and their ignorance. In other words, from Jesus' point of view, they don't have a legitimate reason to hate you or persecute you. But they do it anyway. Why? Get this fixed in your heart and mind. The answer is because sin is irrational. It doesn't have to make sense. They don't have to have reasons. They don't need a cause. In fact, he cites the law that says, they persecuted me, they hated me without cause. Now here in the United States, here in the belt buckle of the Bible belt, sometimes we imagine that we are persecuted because someone won't let us pray in school or somebody won't let us keep Ten Commandments on a plaque outside of a courthouse. 
We imagine that we are persecuted, but we are not, at least not yet. We are criticized, yes. We are mocked, yes. We are bullied, yes, sometimes. But we are not yet persecuted. At least not hated and persecuted the way many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. I want to share with you some unpleasant facts, some unpleasant truths. I want you to look beyond the United States for just a few moments and remember that we are not the only Christians. We are not the only followers of Christ in the world. Listen for a moment. According to reports by Open Doors USA, Voice of the Martyrs, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the year 2015, that's last year, was the worst year in modern history for Christian persecution. The worst in modern history. It is estimated that each month, 332 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Christian churches or properties are destroyed. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, including beatings, abductions, rape, imprisonment, forced marriages, and we could go on. Every month this is happening. Many of the refugees that are fleeing the Middle East and risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean Sea are professing Christians. Some of them are ending up right here in Dallas. And we have a missionary to those refugees with us tonight. A Turkish friend of mine from seminary still weeps when he tells the story of the pastors who shared the gospel with him who were then later martyred for their faith in Turkey. Last week I heard the testimony of a seminary student from Iraq who shared the story of his conversion to Christ while he was still living in Iraq. He became a part of an underground church in Iraq. And when his pastors were arrested and only God knows what happened to them, he was urged to flee Tehran. When he got back to his hometown, he was urged to flee yet again. And he went to Turkey and then he was... He left Turkey and eventually ended up here in Dallas where he is getting trained and equipped not so that he can make a better life for himself, not so that he can have a career as a pastor, but so he can take the gospel to his people. All of these stats and stories of persecution stand in sharp contrast to our comfy and cozy life here in the United States, especially here in the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. Here, professing Christians are often ashamed of Christ, often betray Christ, often deny Christ with far less at stake, far less at stake than putting their lives on the line. Why? Well, they don't want to seem weird or look different or feel ashamed or lose face or, or face fears or whatever it may be. And so we often find Christians playing this game of hop, skip, and jump with Christ and the church over silly things and petty matters. We flee from one church to another, not to escape persecution, but just because we're looking for a better thrill. Jesus prayed Psalm 69, zeal for God's house will consume me. And I'm sad to report that many American evangelicals simply pray, zeal for God's house is not consumer friendly. 
on the darkest night of the world. Jesus counseled His disciples to hang in there with Him and to stay connected to Him no matter what. Even if the world hates you, even if it persecutes you, even if it kills you. And it will kill you. Imagine those disciples walking through the streets with their heavy hearts, all of this weighing down upon them, and Jesus piles on one more unbearable truth. One of you will betray me. One of you will deny me. I'm leaving. You cannot come. The world will hate you. The world will persecute you. They're going to put you out of synagogues. You're going to be excommunicated from your churches, guys. And here it is. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to the true and living God. I wonder how many of the disciples stopped and grabbed each other and say, did he just say what I think he just said? Did he say when, when they kill us, we're going to die? What's, gonna, what's going on here? Was this a part of our church membership class? I don't remember this. If this had happened in the 21st century, some of them would have said, I think we just need to go to another church. I feel God calling me somewhere else. I mean, this is not the right place for me. That's the kind of stuff we do. Why is all this going to happen? Why is all hell going to break out against the followers of Christ in the name of this religious zeal? Jesus says it all comes down to this. The world does not know the triune God. The world does not know the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. That's why they will do these things. And notice this. It brings us into a conundrum, as they like to say. A tight spot. The difficulty. And here's the conundrum. The world does not know God. And so God sent His Son into the world to show and tell who God is. The world hated, persecuted, and killed the Son of God, in the name of God. The world still does not know God. And so God sends His Son's followers into the world to show and tell who God is. And the world hates and persecutes and kills them in the name of their gods. In the face of such animosity and conflict, what are we tempted to do? We are tempted to conceal the fruit of the vine. Instead of holding out the fruit of the vine to the world, we are tempted to hold it in and hide it. Instead of carrying the fruit of the vine into the world, we are tempted to cover it up or cast it down. Why? And that's the right answer. There is no answer. There is no reason. There is no excuse valid for that kind of unfaithfulness. That kind of faithlessness. We need to repent of our desire to be liked and loved by the world. And we need to rejoice that we are liked and loved by the Word made flesh for the life of the world. You see the difference? Now the good news in all of this is that we don't have to go at it alone all by ourselves. In this story, Jesus reminds us of this invisible friend, this invisible helper who will come to us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to help us. 
This Spirit comes and He keeps us connected to the vine. He comes and He keeps us centered on the vine. And He comes and He keeps us connected to each other. And He does all of this by bearing witness about Jesus Christ so that we will in turn bear witness about Jesus Christ to the world. This is the missional part of being vines, of being branches connected to the vine. Now why did Jesus tell His disciples all these things on that night, on the eve of His arrest, His beating, and crucifixion? Tucked away, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. When you hear all those things, you might want to go away. You might want to fall away on your own. You might want to drift off and hide. But Jesus says, no, I want to tell you the truth. I want you going into this mission with your eyes wide open. I want you to know what you're getting into. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be scandalized. The word fall away in Greek sounds like this word scandalizo. Our word scandalized comes from it. And it simply means cause to stumble, cause to sin, cause to fall away. Jesus says all these things to keep us from tripping when haters and persecution comes our way. He wants all of His followers to know full well that as they go out into the world, they are going to encounter trouble. We are going to have hard times. And we must brace ourselves for it. As a bookend to this whole conversation, which started in the upper room, Jesus reminds the disciples here of something He said earlier that night. No servant is greater than his master. The first time He said it, He simply meant that His disciples should humble themselves and wash one another's feet. But this last time that He says it, He means something beyond that. He means that they need to take up their crosses and follow Him into suffering and into death and then back out into life with the help of the Holy Spirit. And do you know that that's exactly what these men did? According to Christian tradition, the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was tied to a cross and died of exposure two days later. James was killed with a sword. John was exiled on an island in his old age. Thomas was pierced with many spears and died. Philip was scourged and then executed. Other apostles were skinned and beheaded and stoned and crucified. No servant is above his master. If he suffered, we can expect to suffer. Like their master, these men who heard these hard words on that dark night eventually laid down their lives for their friends, for the life of the world. May God grant us the grace to do the same for each other, for our friends, for our enemies, for the sake of Christ and His gospel. I want to end tonight with a story that none of you should ever, ever forget.
Nearly two years ago, something happened in our world that shocked everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. And here it is. Most of you remember the images of the 21 men in orange jumpsuits kneeling on a beach somewhere in the Middle East. Standing behind them were black-clothed captors holding knives. One by one, each man in the orange jumpsuit was brutally slaughtered. And as this happened, many of them were praying with their final breath, Lord Jesus Christ. According to reports, one of the men who was numbered among the 21 was not a professing Christian when he was captured. But when his, demand, when his captors demanded that he follow Islam, Matthew, Ayarga, an African man from Chad, turned them down. And when they asked him, do you reject Christ? He answered, in reference to the men who were being slaughtered to his right and left, their God is my God. And thus he became one of the 21 martyrs who laid down their lives by faith in Jesus Christ. He was not a professing Christian when he went in to that trial, but he was one when he left that trial. He saw the faithfulness of branches of the vine holding out fruit to a world that hated them and persecuted them and killed them. And he professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when I see stories like this and hear stories like this, I think, where do these men get such fearlessness? Where do they get such faithfulness? This is more than intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. This kind of faith is supernatural. It is a gift that comes from God the Father. It is sent through Jesus Christ and delivered by the Holy Spirit. In the hour of their death, the Holy Spirit helped them bear witness, testify, to martyr the name of Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace. We like that part. The part we forget is the fruit of the Spirit is also faithfulness, kindness, goodness, gentleness. These are things we can see not only in those 21 men, but often in one another and in others around the world. That fruit comes from the Spirit of Christ at work in you branches. Brothers and sisters, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but trouble is coming. And we will need to be much more tough-minded and tender-hearted and thick-skinned then than we are now. So that when it comes, we will be able to hold out the fruit of the vine to the world without hiding it. And that we will be able to carry the fruit of the vine into the world without casting it down. And we will do this for the glory of God and for the good of others. I do not want you to hate the world. This is a temptation we face. 
Do not hate those who hate you. Do not persecute those who persecute you. Do not kill those who kill you. Remember that this same world who is doing all of these things to Jesus' followers is a world that God loves. God loved the world, even this world of haters and persecutors and murderers. And this is how God showed His love to them. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Here's the bottom line. God's love trumps man's hate. Love trumps hate. But it's this kind of love that trumps that kind of hate. And one of my favorite films, The Kingdom of Heaven. There is a knight named Godfrey of Ebelin who finds his son and he takes his son on mission into the Middle East. And with his last and dying breath, he makes his son a knight and he gives him a solemn charge which I want to echo and pass on to you now. And here's the charge. Be without fear in the face of your enemies. Be brave and upright that God may love you. Speak the truth always even if it leads to your death. Safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. This is your oath. May the Spirit of Christ help us to trust and obey God in all these things, come what may. Let us pray for ourselves and for all those throughout the world who are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ our Lord.